Hello, and welcome to The Unique CPA. I'm your host, Randy Crabtree. The goal of our show is to keep you at the forefront of the changing face of public accounting by having conversations with fascinating leaders and bringing you their stories, insights, and advice. The Unique CPA podcast is brought to you by Trimerit, the specialty tax professionals. Today, our guest is Alan Colton. Alan, honestly, doesn't really need to be introduced in my mind, but I am going to highlight some of his achievements and recognitions and just what he does in the industry. This is the short version, so uh, take that for what it means there. There's going to be a lot more that I don't say. But So Alan is a nationally recognized and highly sought-after speaker. He's an author and a consultant to the professional services industry, and this is where it gets pretty interesting. He's been named by Accounting Today as one of the top 100 most influential people in the accounting profession for the past 21 years. You heard that right, 21 years. He's been named by Inside Public Accounting as one of the 10 most recommended consultants for 18 straight years. There's a theme here. Uh, He's been named by CPA Practice Advisor as one of the top 25 thought leaders in the profession for seven straight years. They must have just started that seven years ago because I don't know why that wouldn't be in the 20s. Uh, He is in uh, the CPA Practice Advisor's Accounting Hall of Fame, and he was one of the first to be inducted into the Accounting Marketing Hall of Fame. That's where I'm going to stop. There's a lot more I could say. I'm thrilled to have Alan here. Alan, welcome to the Unique CPA. Randy, thank you so much. And thank you for all those kind words. I wish my kids could be on. Uh, <laughs> think I'm the biggest loser, but thank you. That's no problem. <laughs> Believe me, you. I, I got to meet you, I think, first time was probably seven or so years ago. And I had heard of you before that. So it was uh, it was great to meet you then. And, and really, I'm, I'm honored to have you on the show here today. And to that end... We could, I honestly could sit and talk to you for, you know, 12 hours on, you know, probably 12 days on a myriad of subjects. But what I really want to concentrate on today is something that's been going on for the, well, it's been going on for a while, but it's in the news lately, the last couple of months is private equity investment in public accounting. This came back into the industry in August with uh, Eisner Amper, top 20 CPA firm getting a private equity investment. And then a month later, I think Shulman out of, I think they're Florida, uh, 65th largest firm, I think according to County Today, actually sold a portion of their firm to private equity. And so this is happening. And I've seen you quoted saying it's going to continue to happen. You're going to see more of this. And before we get into all the this is a long question. Before we get into all the uh, whys and positives and potential negatives, I want to talk about structure because this is the first thing that popped into my mind is how is this? How's private equity owning a public accounting firm? And I know there's this alternative practice structure. So can you kind of give us an idea of what this looks like after this money comes in? Yeah, I think you know, there's a history here and the history probably of outside ownership. We have to go back to the late nineties, you know, when firms like American Express Tax and Business, uh, H&R Block, CBiz, then called Centerprise, uh, UHY, uh, there are all these different versions of outside ownership. You fast forward to today and there's the new breed of PE firms coming into the market. You know, you identified, uh, Eisner Amper and Schulman, uh, there'll be a, a third one coming out, another top 20 firm, uh, probably in the next a week to uh, 10 days. I mean, it's being communicated internally right now to clients and, and staff. In addition to that, I'm 
working with two other PE groups that we are sort of, if this were a baseball game, we're somewhere in the third to fifth inning mm -hmm. of discussions with uh, two other top 30 CPA firms. You know, what's fascinating with this, and I was warned of this, is as soon as one sort of unlocks the code, many will come in. I mean, the history here is this party started back in 2007 and got to the bottom of the ninth. But unfortunately, that summer of 2008, you know what happened. And oh, yeah. we had the Great Recession and that PE group and that CPA firm backed out. Fast forward about five, six years, uh, a handful of firms tried again. The big difference from 2011 to 2021, and it's huge. In 2011, the large CPA firm said to PE, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, you want to get a double-digit return on your investment? I can go to the bank and borrow money at 1%. They're practically giving it away. True. What changed in 2021 is the need, the thirst for capital. And if you look at the metrics of CPA firms, revenue per equity partner is going up. That means that there's fewer partners to put capital in. Number two, unlike 2011, we're in this fourth industrial revolution and trying to get compliance practices to be consulting, advisory, outsourced practices, the investment in technology, the investment in the insanity of the war on talent, recruiting, retaining people at a time where the supply of accountants is not matching up with the demand. As you know, Randy, most accounting firms today will tell you getting business is not a problem. Right. Figuring out how to get the work done is, is uh, darn near impossible. So you have the perfect storm. You have firms in need of capital. You have a generation of baby boomers, as you know, this decade more are going to retire than the last three decades combined. You have a major transformation of the platform of public accounting you know, just called simply compliance to consulting. And, and in that compliance, not only is uh, there going to be evaporation of compliance due to the bots, machine learnings, and blockchain, and all those things, the marketplace is saying, I'm only going to pay so much for compliance work, but I will pay a lot of money for value-added type services. Yeah. So private equity, the one thing I think they learned is we're not going to buy your whole business. A, we can't because as alternative practice structure, non-CPAs can't own a audit firm. So similar to what H&R Block did with RSM, similar to what American Express did with some of the firms they acquired, similar to what CBiz did. You know, uh, CBiz to me, of those three public companies was the lone survivor. It's 25 years later. If you've looked at their stock price recently, and you bought CBIS stock five years ago at six. I think it closed yesterday at 36. Wow. I mean, they have, they have figured out how to have own outside ownership within an accounting firm. Now, all that said, what private equity is looking to do is they break the companies apart, audit, you know, we'll call it in the case of uh, Eisner Amper, Eisner Amper LLP. Uh, and then XM Consulting is, you know, Eisner Amper Advisory or something like that. Everyone in the organization has card, business cards and is a part of uh, the tax and consulting, unless you're just strictly audit. Then you're going to be on the other side of the house. Candidly, it's, it's, it's what gives a comfort to the regulators right. just because of uh, impairment of independence. 
you know, truth be known, uh, many of the people that are going to do the work on the audits are leased from the advisory practice over to the audit practice. That's what I thought. And, uh, there's a management fee then that goes from the audit practice back to the tax and consulting business. Do they leave profits in the audit or is all that distributed out to the, the new uh, you know, alternative practice? You know, there, there's some level of profitability maintained. And, you know, I want to be sort of careful on the wording of this because I don't want to upset anybody that's a, a regulator or things like that. But I, I think what we have here is, you know, the old days of substance over form. This is a structure that has to happen. My guess is uh, all of the people that work for the organization understand that looking at a P&L of the attest company is not the end all. You know, it's probably not that different than when you have a separate entity for cyber, when you have a separate entity for wealth management, when you have a separate entity for uh, a technology business. You know, at the end of the day, things all sort of back to the mothership. All right. So in the old days, because it was so foreign, it was talked about so much. In today's world, honestly, if I had a partnership with you and I had a, you know, a business card that said Trimerit, I'd say, look, here's my company. But for purposes of doing this type of work, we put it through this entity. And as the client is going to decide, is it a fair price? Right. Do they have the technical competence to deliver the work. And do I actually like these people? Yep. <laughs> uh, that carries the day. All right. So then this investment, and, and just to summarize the, the alternative practice structure, the PE firm owns that or a portion of that. They own, right, they own the tax and consulting side. They have zero ownership in the attest company. And then is there a normal percentage of this yeah. new entity they own? So very precisely, it's going to be more than 51%, but it's probably not going to be more than 70%. And the reason and there's some debate on this, but when you buy an entire organization, there's nothing left for the young ones. Everybody cashes out. That's a good thing. But what they create really is new co. And they say to, uh, they give a disproportionate amount of the shares to the younger partners. And they say, look, at uh, the old ones are going to retire and go to the beach. We're going to build a business. You're going to get a check on day one. You're going to get a second bite of the apple, maybe three, four years out if we can hit certain benchmarks. And in years four to seven, understand that, you know, as we grow EBITDA together, we're going to probably sell this to a bigger fund, a bigger PE group. And don't worry about it because you'll have a significant say in who that is. You know, we're not going to be selling you off without your permission. You're, you're our partner. We're in this business together. And when all is said and done, if the history is correct here, you should 2x or 3x what you would have gotten had you stayed as an independent firm. Number two, where are you going to get that capital to build all these ancillary services with us? You have it the day after. Oh, and you also don't have to use current comp to make that happen. And lastly, you know, if you're 35 or 40 years old, think about it. You're not going to get a dollar until you're 65, Right. then you're going to get it paid until you're 75. It's ordinary income. It's paid without interest. It's, it's uh, you know, one-tenth a year. Did you ever take out a Texas Instruments calculator and do the present value calculation of what that is today? Right, right. And think about the check you're going to get at closing. Think about the check you're going to get three, four years later. Think about the check you're going to get in years four to seven. So this is built with young partners in mind. Really? 
And I think that's why in these uh, three scenarios that have uh, already cleared customs, that's why you had uh, unanimous votes from not just the old, but the young partners as well. Yeah. The three you mentioned, there was what, a CFO firm that, that, Run in private equity as well. Is yeah, that yeah? I mean, there's there's been other one-offs. I, you know, uh, yeah, Smart and Associates. Oh yeah, right. There, there was a uh, CFO group in uh, Northern California. I'm just uh, forgetting the name for a second. I think Cat Sapper Miller in Indianapolis uh, that took some outside ownership into their thing group. Okay. You know, there, there's there's different things that have gone on, but uh, you know, uh, when you have two top twenty firms with revenues over 300 million doing it. This is hitting mainstream pretty quickly. And I would guess if we sort of repeated this podcast a year from today, I would not be surprised if two more top 30 firms went the way of private equity. All right, we're getting a teaser here. Look for look for more. <laughs> but we're actually getting a teaser that by the time this comes out, there may be another top 20, it sounds like. So yeah. all right. Well, that's interesting. I'll be interested to look at that. It's just this, this is this is something I just I, I, I'm intrigued with uh, the whole deal. And so I want to talk a little bit about what you were just mentioning. You know, you get this investment, a portion is going, and I don't know what that portion is, to the current partners. You know, I don't know if the larger portions going to the older partners. That's what it sounds like, because a bigger portion of ownership and the new structures going to younger partners. Is that kind of the makeup? But but before I go there, how much is actually going to go in the partner's hands? How much is going to stay in the business? And then what's that makeup between older, almost retired partners and the 35-year-old you mentioned? Yeah. So even if you think about it, in most firms, if they just went to the finish line, it's independent firms. The older partners, by definition, have more vesting, right? They've been around longer, years of service as a partner, age requirements. You know, a lot of CPA firms, normal vesting, you really need to be there no less than age 55. You probably got to, you know, they get full vestings in some firms, 60 or even 65. Right. Uh, the second is not to suggest that firms use lockstep compensation, but in most firms, the older partners uh, are earning more than the younger partners. And, you know, many, many firms, as you know, use a multiple of compensation as a method to determine retirement benefits. Yeah. So because of all that, uh, simply stated, the older group uh, would see more, but it's not because they're being put in some special class. It's just the way the firm operates. So day one, for the most part, uh, what they're really doing is they're, you know, as you know how private equity works, they sort of go and borrow debt, they lever up the balance sheet. On day one, it's a day of celebration. Everybody's paid their deferred comp, everybody gets the capital back. It's sort of like starting over. And for the year old ones, they say, like, look, this is not about me. I'm fine. And the younger ones say, you know, I want those shares. I want those units. I want incentive stock or compensation. I've got a new business and we're going to drive this and grow it. And we're going to partner with PE. So it's a different uh, model going forward. Okay. And then, so let's, uh, based on that, and you mentioned, you know, they look to grow, you know, PE comes in, you know, looks to create a value and, and get out. So these younger, this 35-year-old partner, they could go through this three times in the, their career or even more where we build it. We increase EBITDA, we sell to the next private equity firm, we do it again, do it again, do it again. So in reality, is the younger partners in the long run going to end up uh, with a uh, potential greater benefit? 
Yeah, so that that's really, Randy, that's the question of the day. And I facilitated a lot of meetings with the younger partners, where the old partners enter the room. And here's what I've said to them. I said, look, if you're a steady Eddie and you don't want risk and you want a slow boil, let's not do this deal. Because if you do this deal, I will tell you there is more risk. There is a lot more upside. But part of why private equity is getting in is to provide the capital and resources to take this business to a whole nother level. That means grow it. But more importantly, it means grow it profitably. And we will have to make some tough decisions that in a partnership structure, we historically have either kicked the ball down the road or we've watered down an answer so everybody is okay with the decision, but it wasn't a great decision. Our life is about to change. Do you want that? Does that excite you? If you look at the history books and you look at companies, you know, whether we call them, and I'm navigant, Accenture, Huron, J. Alex Partners, a couple of the executive search firms. I mean, there's a long list of professional service firms that have gone the way of private equity and have lived to talk about it. The model works, but it is going to be different. Are we okay with that? That's what you have to decide. Right. If you're, if you're a risk taker and you want tremendous upside and you're looking at two, three times more earnings and, and, and money in the bank today, let's go for it. Let's put our hands in the middle. But if that's not us, don't sign up for it. Yep. If we want predictability, if we want zero risk, stay as you are, but you know the business is changing. So you're going to have to take current comp and you're going to have to go build out those areas we don't have. And how long is that going to take? How much money is it going to take? And what if we don't get it right? Do we want to spend the next 10 years investing in something only to come up on the short side of that and say, mm, I, I wish we could roll the clock back? Right, right. Eyes wide open. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that's obviously a good point. And it's, uh, I, I completely see that the upside can be tremendous. So I guess to, to kind of start to wrap it up, what's the end game? Because, I mean, we can't keep flipping this to a new private equity firm indefinitely, right? I mean, so is Endgame, we go public with this? Is Endgame the, whatever the partner base is 30 years from now, buys it back? What 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 is the Endgame? So I would say the it's a great question. The, the Endgame, the, the most logical outcome is in a four to seven year period, that new co will be sold to a bigger PE group. Okay. That's... The second possibility, and you know, I've learned uh, never say never. A IPO is is not crazy. You know, the truth is we can't predict anymore our profession in five to ten years. Right. It's it's on a roller coaster ride, and it's in a dark tunnel. We have no idea where this is going to go. The only advice I have for firms is do not put your head in the sand and pretend transformation isn't happening because you 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 will be left behind. No, I agree with that completely. I've heard some firms, I go to a lot of conferences and that are naive about that. And I'm like, oh boy, you can't be thinking that way. It's, this is, you're going to be passed by and you're not going to survive if that's the, the outlook. So, And Randy, you know this uh, from your work uh, with accounting firms, change in these firms only happens when the change itself is deemed to be better than the status quo. And right now, uh, the status quo, call it earnings in 2020 and 2021, 
are as good as it's ever been. So you talk about change when, you know, they look at you like, did we do something wrong? Why are we doing this? We're making more money than we've ever made. Uh, 2021 is going to be better than 2020. This is going to continue forever. No, it's not. You know, in your earnings, you've got PPP dollars. In your earnings, you didn't spend any money on travel and entertainment. In your earnings, you don't do any out-of-state travel for conferences. Right. You're not making deep investments. No, stop believing your press clippings. (laughs) Yep, yep. So look forward. Yep, yep. All right. Well, I have about a thousand more questions, but I think we'll wrap it up there. We, we can do a phase two or a second one, uh, although I know you're swamped sometime if it works out. But yeah, it's it's just such an intriguing area for me. So any any final thoughts on this before we wrap up? You know, be real. And and, and that's my message to the firm. Let's Let's think strategically, not where we are today, but what the next three, five, seven years is going to look like. And let's have an open mind. And that's not a pitch for private equity because, you know, Randy, at the end of the day, 97% of accounting firms don't qualify if it's uh, for private equity. Uh, you have to be a super highly profitable firm because private equity is about EBITDA. And if you don't have excess earnings to give back to the house, which helps to determine a purchase price, it's not for you. Right. So uh, I think it's more about eyes wide open about the transformation and the opportunities of our industry, where it's going. Yep. Oh no, and and I appreciate you, uh, you know, sharing your insights on this. Uh, I couldn't think of anybody better. I mean, I don't think anybody could think of anybody better to to comment on this. So, thank you. Rick. I appreciate that. If anybody wants to find out what you're doing or get a hold of you, is there any uh, place they can uh, search you out? Yeah, it's real easy. And thank you for asking. It's just Colton K O L T I N Consulting Group. Just yeah. Get to the website. Yep. <laughs> Although I know you're on Twitter. LinkedIn, any other uh, big places? I'm sure there's some embarrassing family pictures on uh, Facebook, but we don't have to go there. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, well, thanks again for being here. and Thank you so much, Randy. Thank you for joining us today. And you can find all the links and show notes for today's episode, as well as more about Trimerit at theuniquecpa.com. Remember to subscribe and join us for our next episode where we'll be going beyond compliance into forging new pathways of delivering value to clients, diversifying your revenue streams, and leading-edge management techniques and styles. This has been a production of Twin Flame Studios. 